This is the People's Podcast with Anthony Zambito and Lucy Chan. Hello, hello. How's everybody doing? Welcome back to, it's been a while, but welcome back to the People's Podcast. I am your host, Anthony Zambito. And with me, as always, is my uh, my sidekick, my partner in crime, the handy dandy, Lucy Chan. How's it going, Lucy? I'm doing well. Hello, everyone. It's been a long time. I've missed you guys. It has. Yeah, there's been quite a lot of stuff. The last episode we had, we had our friend Pavi on from the UK. And that was awesome. We were talking about Wimbledon and talking about some of the misogyny that Russian players were experiencing because of this war. Um, Pavi had himself quite a time at Wimbledon. I'm pretty sure you saw him on social media. Yes, uh, Pavi is actually name drop, re- really good friends with Novak Djokovic and his wife, uh, Yelena. And he he gets free tickets to Wimbledon because uh, he is a, a Novak super fan and he depends him a lot online. And they became friends. And so Novak, being the generous person that he is, he gives all his super fans who defend him online uh, tickets to any tournament. So Wimbledon, U.S. Open, Australia, whatever whatever city you're in, if you're a super fan of him and you defend him, you will get tickets. Wow, that is That's the, he's the only t- he's the only player that does that. Nobody else does that. Honestly, that is admirable. He doesn't need to be doing that. And considering that he won Wimbledon, that makes things really special, especially as the U.S. Open is around the corner. So, Pavi Gill is the man to follow with all of that. Yes, he is. Speaking of awesome guests, I am super excited to introduce our guest for this week. He is the host of The Richard Serrett Show, uh, available on Spotify, a few other podcast streaming services, as well as available on Saga 960 AM. His recent guests include Jamie Saleh, Daniel Boardman, Jim Karahalios, Andrew Lawton, Sue Ann Levy, and Tom Korski. It is awesome to introduce today Richard Sirrett to the People's Podcast. Richard, how's it going? Hey, Zammer. Hey, Lucy. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Uh, hello. And so I'm pleasure to meet you, Richard. Likewise. Yeah, Richard, it has been a pleasure following your content over the past few weeks. And you've been at this for quite a while, eh? I've been in talk radio, uh, both sides of the microphone, for just over 30 years. And I've been behind the microphone for about 20, but this, this, uh, new, new show on saga, the Richard Sarah show is, is uh, kind of new territory for me. Um, although as a producer, I produce current affairs talk radio for many years at CFRB, but getting behind the microphone and doing a, an opinion driven interview style type talk show, just based on, you know, what's happening in the news. That's relatively new because I have, a kind of an alter ego, um, another side of me, which has really been the sort of the conspiracy, paranormal, UFO arena, which I guess I kind of made my name in for many, many years. So about a year and a half ago, I decided to branch out because I've always been very passionate about about politics, geopolitics, uh, and so forth. So that's what I'm doing now aside, you know, I'm doing both simultaneously. I'm riding two horses at the same time. 
Yes, I went on to your both your podcasts, and I was just like, wow, who's this guy talking about end times and the UFO connection? Very interesting. You're a very diverse man, to say the least. Uh, diverse. That's a very polite way of putting it, Lucy. Some might say, you're crazy. <laughs> you're just batshite crazy. But um, yeah, I, you know, for better or worse, that, that's been kind of the brand for many, many years. And that, that began in 2000. So 22 years ago, I was at CFRB. I was producing a number of shows, including the John Oakley show. And um, at that time, the, the management at CFRB, they were very good at promoting talent from within. So if they had a, a talk, uh, like a, a shift that needed to be covered, they would they would find, I don't know, a producer or uh, someone to come in and, and, and give it a shot. So I was handed the Sunday night shot, uh, the hundred, the, sorry, the Sunday night show, uh, from 11 PM, I think to 1 AM. And that's, that's how it started. And I had to figure out what am I going to talk about? And, uh, you know, I, everyone else was talking about the news and provincial budgets and the garbage strike and what I call the workaday reality which is what, you know, current affairs talk radio really was at that time. And I just, I, I, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to talk about it. So I thought, what am I, what else am I going to talk about? And at that time, the only other type of show that kind of spoke to me was Coast to Coast with Art Bell. And um, so I decided, well, that's really not being serviced that well up here. Aside from Coast, no one else is talking about that stuff. And I grew up watching In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy and, I was always interested in these big questions, you know, uh, are we alone in the universe? What happens when we die and so forth? So I said, oh, I'll try that. And it just took off and I've really never looked back. At the same time, I've always, you know, had a, a real keen interest in, in politics because politics is everything. So uh, especially once COVID hit, uh, I decided I have to say something. I have to, I have to um, speak out and stand up for my kids and one day maybe you know if i have grandkids um this is the hill that i have to die on and what else, what can i how can i contribute you know how can i fight fight back so i contacted saga 960 i said i'd like to do a show and and uh here we are uh that was in march 2021 and now we're july 2022 and uh the show has really taken off uh, people have really responded to it. When I started, the uh, the weekly audience for that time slot was 5,000 listeners. And uh, now we're approaching 100,000 per week. So, uh, wow. yeah. That's no, incredible. Back. And is that viewers all over Canada or is that like Toronto, Ontario based? They measure the audience online. And I have, because of the other show that I do, like I need more shows, but I also fill in on Coast to Coast uh, like three times a month. Um, like maybe on a Friday night, uh, if George Norrie, the regular host, takes a Friday off, I'll fill in on a Friday or maybe I'll do a, a Saturday, occasionally a Sunday. Coast to Coast is like the largest late night talk radio show probably in the world. It has over 600 affiliates. It come, it's, uh, it broadcasts out of L.A. And uh, so I promote the show, my, my Richard Serrett show on there as well. And, and listeners just kind of follow me over. So I have... Even on the Saga show, I have listeners probably from all over the world, uh, a lot of listeners in the U.S. even, who will tune me in. Wow, that's incredible. That's, yeah, low-key, it kind of makes you the Rush Limbaugh of Canada. How does that make you feel? 
<laughs> well, I, I don't think I should be mentioned in the same sentence as Rush Limbaugh. I mean, he, he independently saved AM radio. Um, I mean, regardless of how people feel about his politics, and I, I happen to, you know, line up very closely with Rush Limbaugh's politics. I'm a, I always say I'm somewhere right of Attila the Hun. Uh, but he, uh, aside from all that, you know, when before he came along, AM radio was basically uh, country music or maybe traffic, and that was it. Uh, you know, all the top 40 stations were, were um, pretty well finished. And so if Rush Limbaugh hadn't come along, uh, I don't think, I don't know that there would be an AM radio anymore. So he's... Uh, yeah, he's a titan. He was a titan for sure. For our audience who are maybe a little bit younger, sometimes we do have some audience members who are around 25 to you know 29. They may not know who Rush Limbaugh is. So I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of a refresher. Rush Limbaugh, like Richard said, saved talk rate, um, uh, AM radio. He was a, a huge political commentator, ran a show daily in America for decades that was right that was conservative but it was funny he he made politics funny and he called out the bs um, in many ways he was the predecessor to a uh, to what the to john trump now they were actually really good friends and uh rush limbaugh was very controversial but if you actually listen to him and you actually uh had you know ears to hear and eyes to see you would see that the man was making common sense and he was just calling out politicians for their BS and their corruption. And, and there were a lot of people in America who resonated with him, who felt the exact same way. And he became incredibly famous and again, saved AM radio. And also he spawned political right-wing talk. Yeah, I would say he was doing it before it was cool. I feel like he led the way for a lot of people, including yourself, Richard. Um, so you've been doing this for about 20 years, and let me ask you this. Did you go to school for, uh, for radio broadcasting or anything like that, or is this something that kind of just, um, you, know, you know, you didn't choose the radio life, the radio life chose you? A little of both. I mean, I did go to, I did go to Centennial College in the late 80s uh, for radio. At that time, it was radio, television, and film. And... Um, but I had my mind set on a career in documentary television. In fact, I did my internship with a documentary film house. And that's, that was kind of the plan. And um, shortly after graduation, one of my classmates was um, an on-air producer, which is, you know, another name for a call screener. And for people that don't know what that is, if, if you've seen reruns of Frasier, think of the character Roz. She screened the calls, which is a very important job. Especially, you know, when you're doing live phone-in radio, the person who screens the calls and gets them ready to go on air, uh, that's, that's absolutely crucial, that position. Anyway, um, uh, she let me know that CFRB was looking for a, an on-air producer call screener for uh, Ed Needham who was coming back to the radio station after being several uh, away from it for, for several years. Ed Needham was an American, or is, he's still alive, he's quite elderly now, but uh, which, which, what I would refer to as kind of a bloviator, and that is someone who comes on and they're opinionated and they, Ed didn't need guests. He would, like Rush Limbaugh, 
he would just come on and bloviate or, you know, opine for three hours. He could talk nonstop for three hours, even if he didn't take calls. Um, and um, so I was his call screener. That was, and so I, I, I went in there thinking, okay, this will be kind of a temporary thing to bridge the gap before I find my way into documentary television. And so uh, I worked with Ed Needham. And then uh, I, I discovered John Oakley, who was, well, I didn't discover him. I mean, I, I, I found out about him and he was doing the overnight show there. And uh, that's when I really fell in love with the medium of talk radio, live talk radio. And um, that, that was about 1993. That's when I decided, no, I'm, this is, I'm, I'm home. This is what I want to do. So um, um, what was your question again? <laughs> oh, exactly. Like, you know, what kind of led you towards radio broadcasting? And right. uh, it kind of sounds like, you know, you, 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 were, you were kind of interested in it. And then just, I guess, life decided to pass you some contacts and to network you in a proper fashion. And then one thing led to another and you got yourself into the industry. Yeah, like I didn't plan it. Now, uh, I will say this. Um, I mean, I went I went to, to school for it, but you don't need to. That's, you know, the, that's the letting the big uh, cat out of the bag. Um, because I, I've known, in fact, when I was at CFRB, I knew a, a guy that came right out of high school, started interning at the station. And I would say within uh, five, six years, he was actually on air doing the, um, the early, it was called the early edition. His name was Rob Turner. Um, came out of high school, uh, interned, started working as a board op, then found himself on the air doing the before the morning show, which of course is the big show on a radio station, the morning drive and the afternoon drive. He was doing what was called the early edition. It was an hour show from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. and uh, never went to, uh, to school for radio or television. You don't need to. Um, what you need to do is live. You know, go out, experience life, read everything you can get your, your hands on, uh, talk to perfect strangers in the elevator, um, you know, overcome any sense. I mean, if you want to go on air. Um, you don't necessarily expect to start off in a major market. I was, I was very fortunate that I've only worked in the major market. I didn't, you know, I didn't start off in a radio station in Wyerton and then moved to Sarnia and then to, and then to Wetaskiwin and then to Timmins and then to Toronto. I was very lucky in that regard. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the unfortunate aspect of the business now is though all of those small markets that were the, tr the training grounds for young people coming up when you would get out of college and then, like I say, go to a Wyerton or a, uh, you know, name a, name a, a really small market. Those, those stations are, they don't have positions for people anymore. They, on the overnight show or the overnight shifts now, they take a satellite feed from some syndicated show. Um, or um, you've got old buggers like me that refuse to like, you know, lay down and quit who... <laughs> who end up taking those positions from the young people. So it's hard, it's hard to get into, into terrestrial radio now. Um, but thankfully now we have podcasting. So, you know, most people say AM radio, what's that? Hell, most people don't even know what FM radio is anymore. Yeah. Yeah. When you take into account too, like the, um, like, yeah, the changing world, not as many people are listening to radio and also the climate that we're in right now where, you know, it is so easy to get canceled in this cancel culture. 
Um, I don't know if you know the story, Richard, about uh, Kid Carson out in Vancouver, BC. Yes. Yeah. So he was, um, I believe he was on AM radio. And um, basically, he spoke the truth, like at least uh, what he's, he spoke his mind about what was going on with COVID. And then shortly thereafter, he got terminated. Um, how has that been like from you? Is that something you've ever had to experience like even before COVID or, uh, do you just like to have fun on, uh, on the radio when you're there? Well, uh, since I started doing the show on Saga, which is, you know, I mean, COVID is, I would say a, a huge chunk of what I talk about. Certainly when I started in March, you know, questioning vaccines, the efficacy and the safety, just questioning, not saying they're not safe, they're not this, they're not that, but let's, hey, yeah. let's let's show a little intellectual curiosity here and let's, you know, explore this before we just, you know, lap everything up and accept everything whole as bolus. Let's, you know, let's probe a little bit, which is kind of the whole purpose of, you know, having a, having a, a me, having the media. I don't consider myself a journalist, by the way, but I, I try to employ some journalistic uh, tools, I suppose, uh, when I'm doing an interview, but I, I certainly have my opinions and I'm not shy about sharing them. Um, but, uh, I have to say the management at Saga 960 is like nothing I've ever experienced before in 30 years of radio. I've worked with, um, you know, like a corporate entity chorus, um, where everything was like, you know, vetted and, and, um, it was so sterile and so, um, I don't want to say oppressive, but they just kind of just sucked the whole life out of it, really. Restrictive? Well, it's a straight jacket. I guess, you know, when I was working there, I worked at Chorus. Uh, I was producing the uh, the John Oakley Morning Show in, uh, let's see, 2003 to 2007. And we initially, we went over there to have fun and do kind of a crazy morning show because it was called, uh, it was at that time, it was Mojo talk radio for guys and we had a hell of a time and then six months into the uh into our run they changed formats and they wanted us to do you know kind of straight ahead news and for me it just it, it wasn't fun it wasn't creative um everything was about focus groups and research and so forth anyway um just to get back to the the question no at, at saga i have i have been very 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 surprised at um you know how the management stands behind us and and uh uh i have never felt i've never felt for a moment that i couldn't talk about what i talk about and That's uh, incredible. when it comes time you know when they when i if if it, you know let's say the management changes or whatever and they say you can't talk about critical race theory anymore or you can't talk about uh, you know, the radical trans agenda and, and, and how children are being mutilated uh, and, or you can't talk about uh, the hoax of uh, a climate change. It's, you know, okay, where's my hat? See ya. I'm gone. I don't, I, I don't need it. You know, that I w if I have to stop talking about what I'm talking about, I'll, I'll find another microphone. You know, I won't hesitate to, uh, these are, you know, there's so many hills now, I can't figure out which one I'm going to die on. But uh, uh, I these are the core things that I talk about, and I will not stop talking about them unless, you know, they can fire me. They can fire me. And that's kind of liberating. Uh, um, that's where I'm at now in my, in my career and in my life, that um, what I'm talking about is more important than 
you know, my career such as it is. I remember the interview you did with Jamie Sally recently, and she said the very similar to, to you as well. She said, you could take away my gold medals. You could take my championships. You could take away everything except for my kids, but just don't take away my voice. I'm going to, and I, she's like, this is the hill I will die on as yeah. well. This is it. This is, this is the, um, you know, I'm, as we're talking, I'm looking across my studio here and I have a, my, my, my late father's World War II uniform. He was a tank gunner who, and he, and uh, he and his regiment, they helped liberate the, uh, Holland and the Netherlands from the Nazis in May of 1945. Oh. And, um, and uh, he was like, I think he lied about his age in order to uh, volunteer. <laughs> his rationale was that he was going to volunteer before conscription came in because he wanted to be able to pick, you know, which division or which arm of the military. So he he was a tank gunner anyway. And uh, so he was like maybe, I don't know, 18. He was a little guy. He weighed 120 pounds probably when he was in, got through basic training. And um, I mean... I remember him telling me stories of in the winter in Holland, uh, sleeping in a chicken coop during the winter and all the stuff that he went through, you know, it, it, and he was claustrophobic. I, I, I can't imagine, you know, being stuck inside a tank, being claustrophobic at 18, not knowing whether you were going to live to see tomorrow. And, uh, here I am living this, you know, incredibly privileged, uh, easy life. So this is, you know, this is what I can contribute. You know, he, he fought, he risked his life. I'm not risking much really, um, a, you know, a measly paycheck. So this is, this is the, the battle of my generation. And I, I know Jamie Sally feels the same way and many of us feel the same way. This is, this is it. This is, uh, we are at an inflection point in history. And, and this is our, World War II, if you will. So there's no backing down. There's no, um, um, there's no, way, you know, what's that saying Churchill said? If you're going through hell, keep going. That's where we're at. Yep. And arguably, this is our finest hour. Um, Richard, let me ask you this Do you know your dad's rank when he was in the military? He made it to corporal. Well, then I officially am dedicating this show to Corporal Siret of our Canadian Armed Forces. God bless our troops. Oh, thank you very much. He's smiling. Actually, there's a picture of him in the corner smiling. The, uh, the, uh, the motto, he was with Fort Gary Horse, which is Winnipeg. It was a cavalry unit in the First World War. And then in the Second uh, World War, they were uh, like uh, ar an armored division. And uh, the motto of Fort Gary Horse was and remains facta non verba, which means deeds, not words, uh, which is how I um, sort of begin my show. At the beginning of my show, my monologue, I always say facta non verba. I, I mean, I'm, it's funny because I'm doing the exact opposite. I'm all about words and not deeds. <laughs> but I believe in that very much, deeds, not words. Now is the time for everyone to, to stand up and, and um, fight however way you can. Would you believe me if I said that was actually my next question? What does Facta Non Verba stand for? I would believe you because I believe in serendipity. <laughs> I've been hearing that in your episode, so I think that's funny. Actions, not words. Um, and yeah, that's something to live by. 
Um, well, Richard, I was kind of, I'm so, I'm so sorry, Anthony, but I want to ask Richard, what would your grandfather think of Canada now? Uh, my dad? Um, yeah, your dad, sorry. I apologize. That's all right. That's all right. That's, I know it's hard to, I'm, I'm actually old enough to have a father who fought in the Second World War. <laughs> um, I, uh, in, I mean, I miss him. He died in 1986, and I was 20, just shy of my 23rd birthday. Um, but I'm almost glad that he's not around now to see what's happened because um, part of me thinks he might think, well, what the hell did we go over there and, and do all that for? And then just to see everyone, excuse my, uh, my language here, piss it away. Curse as much as you want, Richard. Lord knows I have in the past. Well, and that's what we've done. You know, we've just, everything they fought for, everything our ancestors fought for and built and, you know, um, I'm only one generation away from, um, I mean, my mother, when she grew up, she didn't have electricity in her house uh, or indoor plumbing. Uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, and then my dad and, and that whole generation who fought. And then you go back, grandparents who came over here uh, or, you know, if they were immigrants and had nothing and they risked everything to build something here and then just to see it all pissed away in a generation, um, I think they would be incredibly disappointed and sad. Yeah, my one of my close friends, she's in her early 50s and she has said to me numerous times, she's so thankful that her grandparents are not around to see what has happened to Canada. They would be completely heartbroken, uh, you know, fought in World War Two, just like your father. Uh, you know, her grandmother lost three brothers to World War Two, you know, uh, and and one of them came back with severe PTSD and was able to live through it. You know, uh, her her uncle also uh, her great uncle also fought in World War Two as well and and came back and he you know, she knew him, but she keeps on saying, I just cannot believe what has happened to my country. And she's actually, you know, a classic liberal. She's not like a hardcore uh, conservative as either. She's just, she's just of an older set of, and has seen the decline of our country, rapid decline of our country. Yeah. Uh, liberals are not our, our problem. Liberals, um, I mean, the, the classical liberal is really, the conservative today. What we we stand up for freedom of expression, uh, the freedom to be an individual, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, you know, freedom to protest. All those things that the hippy dippy kids were were protesting on, you know, the campuses in Berkeley, in uh, in California, or universities and college campuses across North America. Uh, those were liberals back then. Today, they're they're uh, Conservatives. I mean, those values are are the the, the, the values of the of a conservative. Um, so the, it's not the liberals, the classical liberals. Today, people who call themselves liberal, um, in many cases, are are not. They are they're 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 Marxists. They're wokies. I call them wokies. Yeah, I just tend to coalesce them together as the liberal left, because the reality is there are lefties who don't like what's going on with liberalism. And there are liberals who don't like how far extreme the left has become. But the majority of the left, I would say, is it believes in some degree of leftism, Marxism, and some degree of this new woke liberalism. The thing about 
liberalism that I've discovered is that there is a basis of socialism in their theology, in their ideologies, I should say. And to quote Vladimir Lenin, the goal of socialism is communism, meaning that you get yourself, uh, you get into yourself the idea of society, the idea of slowly de being dependent on the government and also thinking about uh, the common good, the societal good instead of the individual. And then the more and that and the more that permeates in your mind, in your soul, and also in society as well, the more communism takes hold. The more you can say, oh, why do you need to have a car? You know, because it's bad for the environment, for the entire world. You, we have to do this for the entire world. Why, you know, why can't you um, just behave and say these pronouns? It's good for the entire world. Why can't we accept this and this and this? It's good for all of society. If you've noticed the past, two, particularly the past two years, it's, it's ramped up. Everything has been good for the whole of society, not for the individual, which is more classic conservatism. Right. Uh, yeah. I think Ayn Rand said that um, um, communism is murder, suicide, uh, socialism is suicide. They're, it's basically, they, they wind up in the same place. And that is the, uh, the, uh, those at the top uh, they get capitalism, they get free market capitalism, and uh, the rest of the uh, the citizens get, uh, you know, well, they eat out of garbage pails. Um, that's Or bugs. Yeah, or bugs. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, basically, capitalism is, um, uh, you've got um, inequality in terms of wealth, and in socialism and communism, you have equality of poverty. Everybody's poor. I'll pick the former. That's something Winston Churchill said in the 50s. Yep, 100%. And I think it was Margaret Thatcher who said uh, the problem with socialism is that it eventually you run out of other people's money. Or That's right. That's right. Along those lines, yeah, because when you think about the liberal government, their plan is just basically to spend their way out of every problem. Well, the problem in doing that is that there is enough money to go around. And literally, this is like a perfect example of what you just said, Richard. Uh, we're, we're currently living in a point in history where the GDPs of countries like Canada and the United States is declining, but the biggest companies in the world are making record profits. Companies like Moderna, companies like Shell, companies like Tesla. How does this continue to happen? How does it continue to happen? Um, yeah, well, under cover of um, uh, a complicit media that enjoy being they become part of the the ruling class. The, the media is, or or journalism has traditionally been about comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And now the the um, the fourth estate or the fifth estate, whatever you want to call it, um, has become part of the ruling class, and so they carry water for you know the politicians. So they've completely abdicated their responsibility. They, and now, you know, now we have the army of uh, citizen journalists, citizen journalists, and, you know, some of them are a little off the mark sometimes or make a lot of mistakes, but at least they're, at least they're asking questions and at least they're scrabbling around in the dirt looking for truth. And, you know, many of them, as I say, are off the mark or they're misguided or whatever, but what, you know, and, and they're, they're looked at, 
disparagingly by the the mainstream media. But what what do they expect? The, uh, they had to fill the void, these citizen journalists, and we're not going to get perfection, that's for sure. But most people, uh, the latest polls, what, what is it, the, uh, the trust in um, uh, you know, broadcast journalism is around 15% or something like that. It's just in the toilet and uh, no one to blame but themselves. I mean, they've just, they've betrayed every, every, uh, well, they don't swear an oath, but, you know, they just betrayed all of their values and uh, turned their back on, on, um, on, their fellow, on their fellow man. So that's one way it happens. Uh, and then we also, as, as citizens, we bear a great deal of the, the responsibility because we, we let it happen. Um, we were so busy chasing our tails and paying for our toys and allowing ourselves to be distracted by, you know, Monday night football or hockey night in Canada or, you know, making car payments and so forth. Um, and we became, uh, we came, we, be, we came, we came accepting of the fact that we were, yes, we were living in a cage, but it became a very well appointed cage. It was very comfortable, uh, our cage or our prison cell. And so we, we sacrificed, uh, liberty and freedom for comfort and safety. And, um, we become, we, we, we became very soft. It, what is, there's an old expression, um, hard times make for strong men, strong men make for good times, good times make for weak men, weak men make for bad times. Yeah. And when you take a look at where we are right now, no, I've been saying exactly that for the past two years. Pardon me, guys. Just going to take a second to let you know that this episode of the People's Podcast is brought to you by TDM Web Solutions. TDM Web Solutions is a web agency that builds modern, clean websites that set you and your business apart from the competition. They not only build websites, but they also specialize in business development, digital marketing, branding, graphic design, e-commerce, social media, and much more. Whether you run an online business, work as a contractor, or need a website for your brick and mortar store, TDM Web Solutions is a one-stop shop for all your business needs. Don't take my word for it. Check them out yourself. Um, when you take a look at the number of people who, uh, who chose to don the mask, even though they didn't want to, when you take a look at the number of people who took the vaccine, even though they didn't want to, when you take a look at the abysmal voter turnout percentage we had in both the federal election and the provincial election, uh, yeah, it seems that people have checked out on the way, on the way things are. And, um, you're right. I think that, you know, a lot of people talk about how it's our rights to be civilly in, uh, engaged, but I'd also argue that it's our responsibility to be civilly engaged because we are currently in a society where we're not collectively and look where we are, where, you know, um, things aren't expected to get much better. And eventually we're going to have to stop blaming the Russians and, you know, clean up our own closet. Well, freedom is, it's like Reagan said, it's, you know, less than a generation away from being lost. And once you lose it, it's almost impossible to get it back. And I don't know where, you know, if we always talk about how many minutes or seconds are we away from midnight? Well, if, you know, when they're talking about nuclear war or, or whatever, uh, how many seconds away from midnight are we from losing it all in this country? 
I don't know. It feels awfully damn close, uncomfortably close. And um, I don't, I honestly don't know if we can get it back, but we have to try. We have to fight. We have to, you know, we have to go down fighting. And it's very difficult. You you know, you're trying to wake people up. And um, uh, sometimes, you know, you have to, there's nothing you can, it's like trying to slave a, save a drowning victim. You know, you, if you if you try and save a drowning victim, you're very likely to, to drown yourself because they're going to panic and they're going to try and climb on top of you and, and you're going to go down too. So I don't know what at what point do we decide, okay, the fight is over, it's lost, let's, you know, let's make an exit strategy. Um, we're not there yet, at least I don't feel that we are, and I'm still um, determined to to fight. I don't know. I don't know how long, how close we are to midnight. It's, it's awfully damn close, but while there's, uh, while there's still a little, a little bit of daylight, I guess, between here and midnight, then well, that's a horrible analogy. Anyway, I think you get what I mean. We got to yeah. fight. Allow me to, to remove the clouds. I'm feeling super optimistic. I think that we are at least minutes away from, uh, from doomsday. And the reason why I say that is because I am optimistic that another freedom convoy takes place next winter. Next winter. Next winter. Uh, these will be the farmers, do you think, this time? Probably. I mean, the last one was super fun, which is kind of why I want to see it happen again. But we're at the point, yeah, I would love to see, <laughs> I would love to see the farmers uh, in Canada rally the same way we're seeing in the Netherlands. Um, yeah, the, the Netherlands right now is completely going off. I don't know if you guys have been following oh, yes. along there. Yes, I, ha I have been following very closely. Yeah. And it's also in Italy, also in Spain. Um, Ecuador. Uh, Germany, Poland, Panama. Argentina. Yep, Ecuador. Yeah, yeah it's Argentina. worldwide. And it's a little different in each country. Uh, in some places, uh, South Africa, uh, it's about, you know, it's about uh, inflation. In other places, it's about driving farmers off the land, which is what that's about in the Netherlands. It's not really about capping emissions. It's about driving them out of business, clearing the land, building, you know, stacked housing, letting in more migrants, all in line with, uh, you know, the, the Great Reset and so forth. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I, 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 too, would like to see a farmer's revolt in this country. I would like them to descend on, that's easy for me to say, but for them to descend on Ottawa, I would love to see, uh, I call them, uh, Sinister Bill Blair and Mendacious Mendicino and Deputy Dimwit. Uh, I would love to see them try and, you know, order a tow truck to, to drag uh, an international uh, harvester combine off of Wellington Street. Um, I would, you know, I would love to see the farmers shut down that den of vipers and uh, all of those sn snowflakes and laptop elites in Ottawa. Um, you know, go into apoplexy when uh, when tens of thousands of farmers descend on Ottawa. Uh, they need to shut the country down. They do. That's I hope they do. Yeah. I want them to. I want I want there to be a revolution, but I don't want you know I don't want guillotines. Maybe I do. Maybe I want Justin Trudeau head on, head on the guillotine. That's I'm just being joking. I'm not. That's not real. Um, but I do. I do want a revolution to happen in this country. I want the people in like you said the laptop elites i want the wokies i want the elites in this country to realize you know we the people 
have power and we the people are not going to be stepped on anymore. And also we the people fund you. Yeah. And you're not better than us. You are not better than us. That's one of the biggest problems with elitism is that they think that they're better than us. That's that's absolutely true. They they um they think there's, you know, one law for for everyone else and then they operate under a different set of rules. I mean, I listen, I I don't want revolution. I want because if we go down that road, Oh, I don't mean that type of revolution. Yeah. I don't mean like I just I want to I want a revolution in a spiritual sense. I want a mental right. revolution. Yeah, I want a I want major political realignment. Uh, so like, and unfortunately, Canada in so many regards is behind the curve. Um, and when we when we look at what's happening in Europe with political realignment, where these let's call them third parties. Um, so you've got you know. Uh, Marine Le Pen in France, or you've got the the brothers in Italy. These parties they come out of relatively uh, out of nowhere, and um, they don't necessarily come to power right away. But they force the um, the ruling party to move to the right. Um, and you'll see, you know, Macron has done that in certain regards. He's still a globalist, certainly, um, but he but in the local election, the regional elections. Uh, the Pens parties, what is that called? Is that the National Front? I think so. Yeah. They are forcing Macron to, uh, I mean, he's made statements like, you know, the, you know, the, the West is, is destroying our culture and he's clamped down on, um, you know, radical Islam that's taken root in certain mosques where France is now taking control of mosques. I don't, I'm not picking on the Muslims. I'm just giving an example that's particular to France because of the, the issue they've had with um, absorbing um, m migrants, and um, um, in, in, in the beheading, remember, they, there's been beheading. Yes, it's a horrible situation. Yeah, there. and churches. So, yeah, so and in in Italy right now, we're you know September 25th, they're going into an election. Mario Draghi, the uh, the globalist technocrat, resigned. The president in Italy, and that's a that's a ceremonial role. He didn't want to accept Draghi's resignation because he knows what's coming. Italy is about to elect and give them a supermajority for the first time since you know. Well, they've never had anything but very fragile coalitions ever since the you know the end of the Second World War in Italy. That's why they have a government every like twelve, sixteen months over there. But now, for the first time, we're going to see a coalition of three right of center parties, the brothers, Lega, and can't remember Silvio Berlusconi's old party. Um, anyway, the three of those are combining. They're going to have a two thirds majority in both houses in Italy, likely come September 25th. So Italy um, could be the first domino to fall in the EU. They are a very Euro skeptical uh, coalition. I could see them holding a referendum and leaving. I know Britain started in with Brexit in 2015, but um, Italy, I think, is the next domino to fall. And we're starting to see major political realignments in Europe. And it's it's a return to uh, the nation state, to culture, to faith, and to family. I hope so. I hope what you're saying is absolutely true. That is... Some, particularly for me, for faith and family, because I am a Christian, as many people on, on this podcast know, that is something that I think that if we realign ourselves with our faith, Western nations, 
you know, think and, and not traditional values and family, a lot of our problems will be gone. Yeah, I just again, because Canada's behind the curve, and I don't know how far behind the curve we are, is it five years? Is it 10 years? I don't see that happening here anytime soon. Uh, not that we shouldn't strive for it. Um, but it's going to happen. It. It's going to happen in Europe. Uh, it is happening in Europe as we speak. I'd say we're about five years out. I like to think that Canada is currently going through its Tea Party movements. Um, like when you think about Trump, like Trump didn't just win the election and then the United States right movement took off. Uh, Trump basically encapsulated the Tea Party movement that had been growing ever since Obama got elected. Um, so I'd like to think that Canada is within that timeline. I mean, we tend to be behind most other places, but um yeah, who knows? As one domino fall, falls, the rest will be surely to come, and maybe that'll increase the speed at which people get woken up. Who knows? Maybe. I hope so. I really do hope so. But I will say I'm so happy that you uh, touched on this point, Richard, a couple of times, that Canada is behind. And that's something that I've been saying a lot for the past, I don't know, five years of my life. Uh, but this, there's something in this country that does not like to take risks. There's something in this country that likes to be 12th place. There's something in this country that is okay with being a B minus student. Do you know what I mean? We're okay. Everybody else does it first. 12 other countries does it first, and then we do it. We're not innovators. You know, the last company that, that um, uh, Canada had a huge impact around the world was BlackBerry. Look how that's going. There's, I don't know what it is. Maybe you, you, since you're older, you could tell me someone who's, you know, a younger, who's a millennial, same thing with Anthony, why this country is always behind. Yeah. Um, I, there was that old joke, welcome to Canada where the milk rises to the top. Um, <laughs> I never heard that. Yeah. Uh, we do feel still like a bit of a colonial outpost. And um, where does that where does that come from? I think in in many respects we um, we are shaped by our climate, and in that regard, in some ways we have more in common with the old Soviets than we do with you know the um, I don't know the uh, the revolutionaries down in in the U.S. There's another joke. Uh, 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 an old acquaintance of mine, Hart Pomerantz, was a Toronto lawyer, and um, his brother um, was a creator of uh, TV shows like Cheers and Major Dad, but Hart was a stand-up comedian, and he had a great line about the difference between Canada and the U.S. And, uh, you know, in, in the States, they shot their parents. We still send money home. I know that's kind of, it's kind of grisly, but... Yeah, uh, that's true. That's, you know, the whole idea. We're still a colonial outpost and we are shaped by our culture, which is, you know, it's it's cold and it's inhospitable in many regards, if it weren't for fossil fuels. Um, it's inhospitable. And so what happens is we, we tend then to, we tend to huddle together, together and we rely on the collective for uh, food and security and, um, and all that kind of stuff. So maybe that's part of it. The climate has shaped our psychology uh, into more of a collectivist mindset where, as you say, we tend to think of, you know, the good of the group, uh, instead of the, uh, the individual, but the group is a fiction. There's no such thing as a group. There's no such yeah. thing as a forest. There's only individual trees. 
That's an interesting th thought about that. I, I always, I, I wonder if it's because we always try to do the opposite of what America does. There's certainly that prejudice. Uh, people say, oh, Canadians are so polite. No, we're not. We're, we're not. No, we're, we're not. Passive, we're passive aggressive. We're passive aggressive. And we have, there is this venal anti-American um, sentiment that, that runs uh, through the country. And I, I think, not so much out West, I don't believe. Um, part of the problem is in, in Ontario and Quebec, which the West, you know, uh, sort of pejoratively looks at as uh, Laurentian Canada, but that's mainly Quebec, but sort of Ontario too. We are a collection of noble losers. When you think about oh. who settled Ontario, who settled Ontario, and I'm kind of embarrassed because these are my ancestors, the United Empire Loyalists, those people that came up from the States that didn't want to live or only wanted, they wanted to continue to live under, uh, you know, King George III. Um, they got upset with the revolution. So they came up and they settled in Ontario. So there's one collection of losers. And I mean losers not in, I, I mean it in the sense that they were vanquished. Uh, and then of course, Quebec, well, we know what happened, 1763 Plains of Abraham, they were vanquished by the British. So contrast that with Western Canada. Um, they were, they were settlers, they were pioneers. They had to have, uh, you know, um, a chutzpah. chutzpah. They had to have, uh, um, individual, you know, they're, they're all about individual rights and freedoms and, and they have so much more in common with, I think the United States, um, and, and uh, you know, like Montana and Wyoming and, and that rugged individualism. Uh, and, and so in many regards, we have nothing nothing in common with the West here in Ontario and Quebec. Um, and, you know, people come to Ontario and Quebec, they settle primarily Ontario, Quebec, and now, you know, Vancouver, of course. And they, and many of them are coming from, uh, they're, they're dispossessed people. They're, they're, they're coming from authoritarian regimes. And so they're used to living under the, under the boot. Uh, and so they come here and they think, wow, I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I get a house, I get a, a free, college, I get free dental, I get, things are pretty good here. I'm not going to rock the boat. So that's, I think that's part of the makeup of this country. And uh, we, in the United States, that nation was forged in blood, for yeah. better or worse. And here, it was, you know, negotiation and contracts, and it's, we're all about peace, order, and good government. I always say that United States was created out of conflict and Canada was created out of compromise. Mm -hmm. um, I never looked at that Western on like, uh, I never really analyzed Western Canada, you know, the way you just presented it. And I think that's interesting when I think about like, you know, old timey Western Canada, I think about like the people who came to build the railroads. And I think about uh, a lot of the people who made their way up to the Yukon, uh, the Yukon and Fraser river, the gold rushers, you know, people who had that drive. Right. Right. And, and let's not forget, like, uh, you know, uh, um, what was that called? Rupert's Land? Uh, yeah. The West. I mean, they were basically, they were, they were a colony within a colony. They were sort of dragged into Confederation, you know, maybe left to their own devices. They would have become part of Montana or and North that's Dakota. that's a huge reason why the railroad got built, because that's what politicians like Sir John MacDonald and the British government and Crown at the time feared, that America would continue making their way north. Right. I mean, it, Canada, when you think of it, it really is an illogical construct. Um, you know, it's sort of built along this east-west axis where 
the more natural gravitation should be north-south, like, you know, British Columbia, Oregon, Washington, like I think some refer to that as Cascadia. That, that, that makes more sense, um, that north-south axis rather than east-west. Well, I vow that if I get elected prime minister next election, I will fix all that. <laughs> I make it one of my platform points. Good luck. I kind of want to take us back to when we were talking about my three favorite things in the world, Italy, faith, and family. Um, I wanted to get both of your opinions on what you think about the Pope's visit in Canada. Like, what do you think about the Pope visit in Canada right now? Uh, can I go first? Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think it's propaganda. I think that the Pope is uh, part of the Great Reset. I think the, part, the Pope is part of the World Economic Forum. I think he's a tool, a very famous influential tool in the, uh, in the public's eye and if they if they really truly cared about uh if he really truly cared about these you know the it, the deaths of these these you know uh, kids he would actually point the finger to justin trudeau's father who was in charge of many of these schools and also to the fact that it has come out in the past few weeks that no they have, there's been no sign or no evidence of any child dying in these schools yeah well they kids, kids died in in the residential schools like they died everywhere else and they died of tuberculosis and they died of different things like that but the, the issue of whether you know these this idea that there were mass graves yeah there hasn't been any evidence of that no no i mean what they found were in many cases uh old sort of neglected community cemeteries where uh, there were indigenous people maybe even some kids buried along side um, non-indigenous people. These were not mass graves. They weren't even unmarked graves initially. They, uh, in those days, you know, they would put up a wooden marker and through time uh, or neglect or fire or whatever, though, you know, they simply um, eroded away or, or disintegrated or whatever. But this, so what has happened is this whole narrative that has been picked up again, you know, sort of by the woke um, media is that you know, they've taken it to this nth degree where all of a sudden now we're supposed to believe that, you know, Catholic priests and nuns in the middle of the night strangled indigenous children in their beds and chucked them in an, in an unmarked grave. You know, that's sort of the mentality. Ah, well, let's, let's light up all the churches across this country. Let's just, you know, burn everything down because we're evil and we're horrible. Well, none of that happened. Um, residential schools initially, uh, the idea was when you, you know, uh, Edgar Dan Ryerson, who never lived long enough to see um, residential schools take place, he wanted, I mean, his idea was he wanted to provide an education to everyone, including Indigenous people. That was it for him. Um, you know, he never imagined that it would become what it became. Uh, he was a progressive for his time. He was one of the good guys, like, you know, like John Graves Simcoe, a progressive, stood up in the House of Commons in Great Britain and, and, uh, uh, spoke about uh, ending slavery. And in fact, when he became Lieutenant Governor in Ontario, uh, he, he pa one of the first things he did was he passed an, an anti-slavery act in 1793, the first place in the British Empire to do so. These were the good guys for their time. And now they're knocking down their statue because they're dead white Europeans and they're colonialists. I mean, these people have never looked at a, a history book in their life. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't have a lot to say about the Pope. I mean, I'm an Orthodox Christian. Uh, I'm not a Catholic. 
and you know the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church they've had their their uh, ongoing differences for over a thousand years I guess um, so I really don't have much to add to that except yeah I mean I'm um, I think that the the Pope has made his position clear on things like capitalism uh, he's not a, he's, he doesn't seem to be much in favor of free market capitalism, which is a red flag for me because it's lifted billions of people out of poverty. Uh, he seems to be a bit of a ecumen, um, ecumenical, ecumenicalist. Is that the word? You know, he seems to think that um, uh, that uh, Christians and Muslims and Jews were all basically the same, and um, well, we're not. I mean, we have very different perspectives and very different traditions and very different. Particularly Muslims and Jews. Hmm? Sorry? Particularly Muslims and Jews. Muslims have proactively and fortunately uh, in over the centuries have sought after and persecuted Jews and also Christians yes. as well. Yes. Um, in many uh, sections of different types of, of branches of Islam, they openly hate Jews and, and want to eradicate. Absolutely, them. absolutely, yeah. I mean, you, uh, you talk about the. Uh, I'm uh, I'm the president of the international headquarters for the Jewish conspiracy. I'm the biggest, biggest supporter of Israel, um, and I you know I take a lot of flack for that. But I guess my point was I I see the Pope is almost like he's hoping to uh, I don't know create this one world religion you know we're all the same um and i, I see i see this say for example i grew up in the united church and what used to be called the methodist church and now it has become so watered down you have oh, yeah. now you have pastors in the united church who don't even believe in the divinity of christ oh he was just a, a wise rabbi um he wasn't the son of god he didn't he, you know but he was you know uh, let's Let's um, pick up a, a tambourine and a guitar and sing some songs and pass around the collection plate and feel good. And, and that's, not, um, that's not a serious religion as far as I'm concerned. That's, they're big on fellowship, not much on worship. Um, and I just, I, I, I think that, I imagine the Pope sort of has, that is kind of his template for what all the world religions should become one big, listen, if, I, if I'm a Muslim, I would be equally disturbed by what the Pope is trying to do. And if I were a Jew, you know, it, hey, it's, we should come together and, and, and imams should get together with rabbis and should get together with priests and we should, you know, uh, foster good relations and all that. But we have different ideas about, you know, all the big questions really, you know, mm -hmm. who is God and how do we relate to God and what happens to us after we die and how do we, you know, what is salvation and all of these things. So I, I see the Pope working at, at cross purposes to that. I, uh, I agree with that. I mean, the thing with uh, the Pope that tends to get me cheesed is when he takes our worldly, um, our worldly struggles and tries to put a religious spin on it. Uh, for instance, I've heard him talk about climate change. And I've also talked about, you know, the importance of uh, remaining socially distanced, for instance, in COVID-19. Um, but other than that, though, I can't help but think that this is more nothing more than propaganda. Um, I would like to see, hopefully, I like I'm optimistic that hopefully this can bring an end to uh, you know some of the the like the hurting that the native and indigenous community has been going through. 
but I don't think, I don't know. I'd like to, I, I think the indigenous community needs more than an apology. I think they need, you know, um, like there's still indigenous communities that don't have access to clean drinking water, even though Justin Trudeau promised it when he first entered office. So um, uh, I think it was you, Richard, who said uh, facta non verba, right? Yeah, let's let's um, let's stop all international like foreign aid, which is just going into the hands of despots. And, you know, it's not getting to the people anyway. Uh, let's suspend that until we get it right here at home. Until 100. Until we have. You know, this is unimaginable. Here we are in the uh, the 21st century in a G7, highly advanced, supposedly Western uh, country, and and we have th somewhere between 30 and 40 indigenous communities in this country that uh, you know they can't, let alone drink their water. They can't even shower in 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 the water. It's that filthy that are, you know, uh, it's just a disgrace, and it's it's so solvable. You know, it's so solvable. There's just, I don't understand. Um, I really don't understand why this can't be done. Some things you can throw money at, you know, some problems you you literally can throw money at it and the problem goes away. And um, I don't know, I don't know exactly what the obstacle is here, uh, whether it's jurisdictional, feds arguing with the provinces. I, my understanding it is primarily it's a federal responsibility. I mean, why, why can't you just set, you know, put together a crew of uh, engineers and and water filtration experts and all of that kind of stuff and send them from community to community and say, what do you need? How much is it going to cost? Hey, find a corporate sponsor if, if money's a problem. I don't know. Just like we need to be on a war footing when it comes to that. Like imagine if we had the current crop of uh, dunces in power now and we're heading into the Second World War. Like we'd be doomed because they can't even, they can't get the simple things right. They can't even get us, you know, our, our airports functioning. They can't provide water. They can't, uh, they can't get our passports delivered in a timely manner. They can't procure, you know, like simple, like handguns for our military that work. They can't get anything right. Richard, you're talking like a common sense man and not talking like a failed drama teacher. <laughs> You have to think like a failed drama teacher. I guess that's it, right? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what that guy's on. I don't know what his problem is. He he belongs. He should be doing a couch trip, never mind a vacation in Costa Rica. He needs some serious intervention, that fella. It, I think it just came out. I saw it on Instagram from a, you know, political Instagram Canadian page that he wanted, he tried to give gifts to dignitaries of pictures of himself. I heard that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, oh he's, my, not, a, I'm he's like, not a narcissist, is he? I'm just like, because I used to be an actress and I have known, I know narcissism. I used to be one. I'm hopefully now reformed and been redeemed. But, you know, and I've been around the realm. I'm just like, wow, that is a level of narcissism I have not experienced yet. I'm willing to put up with narcissism, though, if you can get the job done. Like, <laughs> Donald Trump was a narcissist, okay? That's fine. You can have more hang-ups than a Christmas tree, as far as I'm concerned. Just if you can put the puck in the net, I'll put up with that. But he not only is he a narcissist, and he has, I don't know how many other pathologies going on, but he's, on top of all of that, he's also corrupt and incredibly inept. 
yeah and he hangs out with like the most corrupt individuals that you could possibly imagine um do you guys remember in the beginning of justin trudeau's uh time in office he was very close with that one my uh lady from burma who ended up just being a total fraud do you guys remember what i'm talking about at all it's all a blur yeah me too it's so many things of scandals it's like asking yeah, how many I'm times just... has he worn blackface i mean I, it's a blur i've lost count how many times has he rubbed elbows with some corrupt official i I've how many times that. has he praised castro i mean you know well, you know sometimes you know you have to say nice things about big daddy uh but yeah i, I, I don't remember Adam, this jody wilson raybould sorry i'm just adding to like the list of scandals that justin trudeau's done aga khan sorry okay i'm done please continue <laughs> yeah um so richard going back to the radio show um let me ask you this like who would you say, um, what are some of the more compelling conversations that you've had with your guests? Like who came on and really like lit up your eyes, would you say? Oh boy. Um, I guess the one that, some that come immediately to mind would be someone like um, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough. Oh, um, he was fantastic on the Rogan podcast. Yeah, he's been on, oh, I bet you he's been on the show maybe a dozen times and um um, he's just, the thing, he is so credentialed and that's what I find, uh, so compelling is the people that come forward and speak and they're so credentialed and they have everything to lose. I mean, if they just kept their mouth shut, they'd be living the life of Riley, but they're willing, just like, you know, Jamie Sally was saying, they're willing to give it all up. Now, who are you gonna who are you gonna believe? Who are you gonna follow? Someone like that, who's willing to risk everything to say what they have to say, or someone who just goes along with the party line, doesn't want to, you know, turn over any garbage cans, um, in order to you know maintain their their livelihood and their career. Who are you gonna listen to? Who are you gonna believe? So, Dr. Peter McCullough is one of those people. Um, another, um, really compelling guy that I have on quite a bit is Kelly Brown. He's an independent investor investor. So he has a little outfit called Rubicon Capital. Now you say, oh, he's an investor. That's money. What does that have to do with COVID? Well, everything, because it's about data. And if you want to analyze data and, and look at, you know, uh, hospitalization rates and based on the dose or the dose interval in the manufacturer and all that stuff you find in charts and data. Who analyzes data for a living? Economists and people, investors. So Kelly Brown, he calls himself the unofficial and accidental COVID data analyst. And um, I mean, he goes digging through Ontario health stats and, and, uh, and um, comes up with like the risk benefit analysis for young people taking a COVID jab. And what is the, what are the odds that they could come up, they could end up with myocarditis. And uh, even finally, Dr. Kieran Moore admitted, well, it's one in 5,000. Well, it's, that's a very conservative estimate. If, if depending on the manufacturer, the dose of the dose interval, it could be as, the risk could be as high as one in 2,800. So University of Toronto now, is um, mandating if you live on campus, you must be up to date with your vaccines. So you're looking at young, otherwise healthy individuals getting what? 
two, three, four, in nine months, five jabs. Uh, you've got a student body of about 60,000 people at the University of Toronto. So um, let's say, let's be conservative and say one in 5,000. You could end up with 12 dead kids at the University of Toronto. And for the myocarditis, potentially. That's on the administrators. That's unconscionable. You know, where the, and there's no, if they're, if they're otherwise healthy, their odds of becoming, you know, hospitalized or seriously ill from COVID are far greater than one in 2,800. I mean, where there is risk, there must be choice. Yeah, and when you think about the ripple effect that comes with that, I mean, that's one in every 5,000 kid who uh, passes away. Um, but, you know, those kids are going to have friends. And, uh, you know, they have a family as well. And university life is stressful enough as it is. Um, you know, the, the, the number of mental health issues at any Canadian university is, is, is through the roof. And when you, you know, take into account that students are being compelled to take something that, you know, might not even be good for them, could possibly lead to death like that. Like, I can't imagine going to university during this time. I thought it was hard enough for me back in 2012. Um, but yeah, this was an absolute low blow from the University of Toronto. And when you think about it too, it, it kind of hinders on a certain demographic of people, you know, it, it hinders their ability to get into university and continue their studies, right? Um, chances are, if you didn't take the COVID vaccine, you tend to lean a certain direction ideologically, typically right wing. And, you know, if universities adopt this universally, then we're going to see university become even more of an echo chamber than it already is. Well, it's the same with, with hospitals. Um, you know, you have nurses that refuse to take the jab or doctors in some cases, but mainly the nurses. Um, they would not comply because they believed in bodily autonomy. Now, if you're a patient and you're vulnerable and you're lying there on your back and maybe you don't have family around, who do you want advocating for you? You want someone who's just, well, following orders. So now they've rooted out all the non-compliance from the hospitals. I feel less safe now in a hospital, knowing I'm, I'm surrounded only by uh, people who will comply and who will follow orders. Yeah, it's scary to think about. I couldn't imagine even getting myself into an accident right now and having to rely on the ER. Uh, where I live, up in Orangeville, Ontario, oddly enough, our MPP's the current health minister, uh, Sylvia Jones, uh, the emergency department for our hospital was closed a couple of weekends ago. Uh, and the closest hospital to Orangeville, you're, you're looking at 40 minutes, either to Newmarket or to Brampton. So, yeah, it, I don't know. It's just it, it's weird to think about when you think about like this is not the Canada of my youth. And I'm sure you could say the same thing, Richard and Lucy. I guarantee you could say the same thing, too. Oh, the, 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 public, the health system is such a cock up here. Um, you know, this mantra uh, of um, free universal health care, it's a pipe dream. What we have is not that great, and what we have we can't even afford. It's not sustainable. I mean, that's a whole other matter. It was, it was broken before COVID. Now COVID is just totally exposed what a joke it is. So I'll give an example. A friend of mine... Um, was at um, a hospital in uh, Oshawa General. I don't know if it's Oshawa General, but it's a hospital in Oshawa. So he was in there for, um, he went in there for excruciating abdominal pain. 
and he waited in the emergency room for 20 hours. Wow. At the end of 20 hours, basically, they gave him some some, uh, pain medicine and they sent him home and told him he'd he'd have to wait 18 months for surgery. While he's in there waiting in the ER for 20 hours, a woman comes in. She's like in her mid to late 80s and she'd suffered a heart attack, apparently. And she was in ER. Uh, they didn't have a room for her. They, she was in there for like six hours. Same thing. Incredible pain. Somebody slipped her some, I don't know what this is, but I'm, um, it's aeros, uh, aerosolized nitrogen or something rather than nitrogen tablets, I guess. I don't know. Maybe it's a puffer or whatever. I didn't, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure, but it alleviated her symptoms, maybe even saved her life. And of course the, the, uh, the, the heart patient that slipped it to her was like just reprimanded severely for that. But you know, they weren't doing anything for her. So then you've got the situation with the nurses. So nurses making like say $27 an hour and they want, they want a raise and they said, no, you can't have a raise. So what do they do? They quit. Then they go work for some private clinic. Uh, the private clinic contracts with the hospital. The hospital pays the contractor a hundred dollars. They get 37, $37 of that hundred to the nurse. So, you know, they could have, Instead of, uh, instead of contracting and, and, and they could have uh, just paid the nurse what, you know, what they want. It's just um, a complete mess. You know, this idea that we have to have one payer and one provider, it's, there's only a couple other jurisdictions on the planet that do medicine that way. One is North Korea, the other is Cuba, and then there's us. Nobody does medicine this way anymore. I'm not saying we, you know, we should go the route of the United States um, where, you know, people have a... Uh, a bypass and they lose their house but uh, we we have to allow for multiple providers okay so stick with one payer but have multiple providers we have a little bit of that like I'm five minutes from the Shouldice clinic world renowned for doing one thing and that's um, hernia operations but they're private but it's covered by OHIP so we need to we need to bring more of that into the system private multiple providers you can, you can still have, um, you know, public, uh, the government pays or we, the taxpayer pays, but the system is broken. Everybody knows it's broken. They got to rip up the Canada Health Act and start over. Yep, I agree too. I think that, you know, uh, growing up, uh, any kid, you ask uh, anybody, even now, what are you most proud of? Um, or what makes you most proud to be Canadian? Nine out of 10 people would have said our healthcare system. It's, you know, that thing that we used to hold on to. Um, but nowadays, no, I could, like I said, I couldn't imagine getting injured during this time. And, um, I couldn't imagine having an emergency during this time. I couldn't imagine having to wait for surgeries months on end with no hope in sight. Uh, and that's a reality for a lot of people, a lot of people who, who don't have, um, for instance, I know this one girl, you know, God bless her. She was, uh, she had cysts growing on her ovaries and it was a situation where it's not life-threatening, but it's incredibly painful. Well, poor girl, because it's not life-threatening, she never was able to get this surgery, especially during this COVID time. And, you know, it's sad when you, especially when you think about she's paying into this system and she doesn't even have uh, access to use it. Yeah. Yeah. You got, was it a hundred thousand people in uh, Nova Scotia that don't have a family doctor, can't find one? hundred thousand. That's insane. Like you said, we're a G7 country. There's no excuse. No, no. There's so many, so many problems. They're all fixable. That's the frustrating part. You know, if you have adults in charge, 
all of these problems are fixable. We have so many, we're blessed with so many resources, you know, so what do they, what does the government do? They try to hobble the oil and gas industry. It's, I mean, that's the engine that runs this country. Energy. If we were an energy superpower, that would solve so many of our problems. Um, you know, we always see when, um, when they're talking about pipelines, we see a few uh, indigenous people uh, protesting. But the majority of indigenous people, they want those jobs. Those are, they want what we want. They want good paying jobs so they can send their kids. Well, they get free college. But, you know, they want good paying jobs. They want a future. So these environmentalists, they roll into the, into the uh, indigenous communities and say, no, 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 it's going to destroy your way of life. It's going to destroy this. And so the jobs leave and so do the environmentalists. And what's left in their wake is just misery and abject poverty, poverty and uh, suicide. That's the legacy of the, uh, much of the environmental movement in this country. They, they, they destroy lives. They, they, um, they're a death cult. My favorite is when they glue their hands to the sidewalks. I've seen a few videos of that out in Europe. That is hilarious. My goodness. If there are any environmental activists listening to this, please, I do not endorse this. But if you do protest by gluing your hand to the sidewalk, I will laugh at it. And it will spark my curiosity, but it will not get me to, to vote in favor of your policies. Amen. Lucy, do you have anything to say, uh, you know, to kind of wrap things up here? Uh, I don't know if you got any more questions. I, I do have a question, but this could be, this could take a, another 10 minutes. I, if you want to go for another 10 minutes, Richard, I just, you know, you are an older man and I think definitely wiser. Um, when did you got the older start... part, right? Okay. <laughs> got the older part, right? Um, when... with a better radio voice. Okay. When do you think that, uh, this country started going down? Um, good question. Um, mid sixties, I guess mid sixties oh. when, um, just before Trudeau, I guess be before uh, Pierre came into power, we started uh, messing around with things, experimenting, um, not sure when they took prayer out of school. So I think it started there. I think the long, inexorable, inexorable decline uh, began right about then when they took when we when we started to kick religion out of the public square, and kids started to believe what they were told that life is an accident, and uh, by extension, ultimately, nothing really matters. Uh, and that's a great trip to lay on a kid, right? Ah, uh, well, we, we crawled out of the cosmic goo and there is nothing after this. So, you know, go fill your boots. Nothing really matters. You don't think that's going to cause massive psychosis? Um, and, you know, what did we, and the, the sociologists say, oh, there's no connection. Oh, come on. You know, once we kicked religion out of the public square, what do we see? We see uh, teenage pregnancy, divorce rates, drug and alcohol addiction, uh, you name it, it just starts to go through the roof, breakdown of the family. Um, and I'm sorry, all families are not created equal. I mean, not you can't always have the ideal, like a mother and a father in the home, in a loving, committed relationship. I know it doesn't always happen, it doesn't work, but that is the ideal. And um, we, have to, we have to strive for the ideal. Um, so that's, I think, when it started. 
around the mid 1960s. That's what that you know you said. A lot, a lot of people have said the exact same thing. I'm just asking this question because uh, a lot of Americans have asked that question. You know, I hear a lot of conversations with them and I listen to a lot of podcasts and they said the exact same thing. They said um, in the mid 60s uh, for America it was the sexual revolution. And it was also the kicking out of religion out of this uh, out of culture. And I completely agree with you when it comes to, you know, when you start off your life. And the basis of your life is that you are an accident and you have no meaning. Everything that you do has no meaning. Why the F would you care about other people? Why would you care about your ambition or a country or land or anything when it, at the end of the day, it's all meaningless? Like, honestly, that is the, that is the, uh, the ground or your truth or whatever you want to call it that you're taking with with you for for your life and that is what shapes and molds everything that you think about or not think about but do and everything that you go you do moving forward throughout your entire life yeah i agree the, the secularization of our culture that's that's the beginning of the end right there um Richard, let me ask you this. Where can the people find you? How, if people want to hear you speak, where can they uh, tune in? Well, Monday to Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern, the Richard Serrett Show on Saga 960 AM, if you're in the greater Toronto area. Saga as in Mrs. Saga. Uh, or you can stream it online at saga960am.ca or just type in uh, wherever you get your podcast, type in the Richard Serrett Show. Um, you can listen on my website as well, the Richard Serrett Show.com, S Y R E T T, the Richard Serrett Show.com. And um, I don't know, my other life um, as host of uh, Strange Planet, um, strangeplanet.ca. That's if you're interested in UFO and the paranormal and conspiracies and all that kind of stuff, strangeplanet.ca. And then occasionally on Coast to Coast AM. And not to mention you're on Twitter and social media as well. Like, uh, I've seen you on uh, on Twitter a few times. And yeah, yeah I, uh, I need to figure out that whole social media thing. I I do a lot of retweeting and liking, but uh, I, I got to get back on that case. I think I'll get my, uh, my boys to take care of that. I call them the IT department. Uh, they, they help out a lot with uh, editing podcasts and so forth, but that's... Um, that's another uh, area that uh, sort of escapes me is social media. Well, maybe that's a good thing because social media has been part of the rapid decline of our society in the past 10 years, particularly mental health. Oh, it and does have a toxic uh, influence. Absolutely. So it's not a bad thing that you're not on it. Um, I just want to tell our audience that all the information that Richard has said, I will put in our description uh, box and so if you're wondering where you know the link and stuff like that don't worry about it it will be there i will have it in the description box so you could just click and uh, go to it go be a conspiracy theorist and figure out the uh, a if it's a fake moon landing or not or you know if we <laughs> if there were actually uh, giants that roamed the land and all that stuff you could all experience richard and hit and the conspiracy theories and his other and his other uh podcasts as well so don't worry about it, audience.
<laughs> Don't worry about it. Forget about it. Forget about it. Oh, Lord. And with that, I think we're going to wrap things up for this evening. It is Thursday, August 2nd, and that was the People's Podcast. Tuesday, Anthony. I say Thursday. I meant Tuesday, August 2nd. <laughs> That's me. All right.